This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Alarms and Discursions by G. K. Chesterton Section 5 Chapters 13 through 15 A Criminal Head when men of science, or more often men who talk about science, speak of studying history or human society scientifically, they always forget that there are two quite distinct questions involved. It may be that certain facts of the body go with certain facts of the soul, but it by no means follows that a grasp of such facts of the body goes with a grasp of the things of the soul. A man may show very learnedly that certain mixtures of race make a happy community, but he may be quite wrong, he generally is, about what communities are happy. A man may explain scientifically how a certain physical type involves a really bad man, but he may be quite wrong, he generally is, about which sort of man is really bad. Thus his whole argument is useless for he understands only one half of the equation. The drearier kind of Don may come to me and say, Celts are unsuccessful, look at Irishmen, for instance. To which I should reply, You may know all about Celts, but it is obvious that you know nothing about Irishmen. The Irish are not in the least unsuccessful, unless it is unsuccessful to wander from their own country over a great part of the earth in which case the English are unsuccessful too. A man with a bumpy head may say to me, as a kind of New Year greeting, Fools have microcephalous skulls, or what not, to which I shall reply, In order to be certain of that, you must be a good judge of both of the physical and of the mental fact. It is not enough that you should know a microcephalous skull when you see it. It is also necessary that you should know a fool when you see him, and I have a suspicion that you do not know a fool when you see him, even after the most lifelong and intimate of all forms of acquaintanceship. The trouble with most sociologists, criminologists, etc., is that while their knowledge of their own detail is exhaustive and subtle, their knowledge of man and society, to which these are to be applied, is quite exceptionally superficial and silly. They know everything about biology, but almost nothing about life. Their ideas of history, for instance, are simply cheap and uneducated. Thus some famous and foolish professor measured the skull of Charlotte Corday to ascertain the criminal type. He had not historical knowledge enough to know that if there is any criminal type, certainly Charlotte Corday had not got it. The skull, I believe afterwards, turned out not to be Charlotte Corday's at all, but that is another story. The point is that the poor old man was trying to match Charlotte Corday's mind with her skull without knowing anything whatever about her mind. But I came yesterday upon yet more crude and startling example. In a popular magazine there is one of the usual articles about criminology about whether wicked men could be made good if their heads were taken to pieces. 
as by far the wickedest men I know are much too rich and powerful ever to submit to the process, the speculation leaves me cold. I always notice with pain, however, a curious absence of the portraits of living millionaires from set galleries of awful examples. Most of the portraits in which we are called upon to remark the line of the nose or the curve of the forehead appear to be the portraits of ordinary sad men who stole because they were hungry or killed because they were in a rage. The physical peculiarity seems to vary infinitely. Sometimes it is the remarkable square head. Sometimes it is the unmistakable round head. Sometimes the learned draw attention to the abnormal development. Sometimes to the striking deficiency of the back of the head. I have tried to discover what is the invariable factor, the one permanent mark of the scientific criminal type. After exhaustive classification, I have come to the conclusion that it consists in being poor. But it was among the pictures in this article that I received the final shock, the enlightenment which has left me in lasting possession of the fact that criminologists are generally more ignorant than criminals. Among the starved and bitter but quite human faces was one head, neat but old-fashioned, with the powder of the eighteenth century and a certain almost prim pertness in the dress which marked the conventions of the upper middle class about 1790. The face was lean and lifted stiffly up, the eye stared forward with a frightful sincerity, the lip was firm with heroic firmness, all the more pathetic because of a force. Without knowing who it was, one could have guessed that it was a man in the manner of Shakespeare's Brutus, a man of piercingly pure intentions, prone to use government as a mere machine for morality, very sensitive to the charge of inconsistency, and a little too proud of his own clean, honorable life. I say I should have known this almost from the face alone, if I had not known who it was. But I did know who it was. It was Robespierre. And underneath the portrait of this pale and too eager moralist were written these remarkable words. Deficiency of ethical instincts, followed by something to the effect that he knew no mercy, which is certainly untrue, and by some nonsense about a retreating forehead, a peculiarity which he shared with Louis the Sixteenth and with half the people of his time and ours. Then it was that I measured the staggering distance between the knowledge and the ignorance of science. Then I knew that all criminology might be worse than worthless because of its utter ignorance of that human material of which it is supposed to be speaking. The man who could say that Robespierre was deficient in ethical instincts is a man utterly to be disregarded in all calculations of ethics. He might as well say that John Bunyan was deficient in ethical instincts. You may say that Robespierre was morbid and unbalanced, and you may say the same of Bunyan. But if these two men were morbid and unbalanced, they were morbid and unbalanced by feeling too much about morality, not by feeling too little. You may say, if you like, that Robespierre was, in a negative sort of way, mad. But if he was mad, he was mad on ethics. He had a company of keen and pugnacious men, intellectually impatient of unreason and wrong, resolved that Europe should not be choked up in every channel by oligarchies and state secrets that already stank. 
the work was the greatest that was ever given to men to do, except that which Christianity did in dragging Europe out of the abyss of barbarism after the Dark Ages. But they did it, and no one else could have done it. Certainly we could not do it. We're not ready to fight all Europe on a point of justice. We're not ready to fling our most powerful class as mere refuse to the foreigner. We're not ready to shatter the great states at a stroke. We're not ready to trust ourselves in an awful moment of utter dissolution in order to make all things seem intelligible and all men feel honorable henceforth. We are not strong enough to be as strong as Danton. We are not strong enough to be as weak as Robespierre. There is only one thing, it seems, that we can do. Like a mob of children, we can play games upon this ancient battlefield. We can pull up the bones and skulls of the tyrants and martyrs of that unimaginable war, and we can chatter to each other childlessly and innocently about skulls that are imbecile and heads that are criminal. I do not know whose heads are criminal, but I think I know whose are imbecile. THE WRATH OF THE ROSES The position of the rose among flowers is like that of the dog among animals. It is so much that both are domesticated as that have some dim feeling that they were always domesticated. There are wild roses and there are wild dogs. I do not know the wild dogs. Wild roses are very nice. But nobody ever thinks of either of them if the name is abruptly mentioned in a gossip or a poem. On the other hand, there are tame tigers and tame cobras, but if one says I have a cobra in my pocket, or there is a tiger in the music room, the adjective tame has to be somewhat hastily added. If one speaks of beasts, one thinks first of wild beasts. If of flowers, one thinks first of wild flowers. But there are two great exceptions caught so completely into the wheel of man's civilization entangled so unalterably with his ancient emotions and images that the artificial product seems more natural than the natural. The dog is not a part of natural history, but of human history, and the real rose grows in a garden. All must regard the elephant as something tremendous, but tamed, and many, especially in our great cultured centers, regard every bull as presumably a mad bull, in the same way we think of most garden trees and plants as fierce creatures of the forest or morass taught at last to endure the curb. But with the dog and the rose, this instinctive principle is reversed. With them we think of the artificial as the archetype, the earth-born as the erratic exception. We think vaguely of the wild dog as if he had run away like the stray cat. And we cannot help fancying that the wonderful wild rose of our hedges has escaped by jumping over the hedge. Perhaps they fled together, the dog and the rose, a singular and on the whole an imprudent elopement. Perhaps the treacherous dog crept from the kennel, and the rebellious rose from the flower-bed, and they fought their way out in company, one with teeth and the other with thorns. Possibly this is why my dog becomes a wild dog when he sees roses, and kicks them anywhere. 
Possibly this is why the wild rose is called the dog rose. Possibly not. But there is, in this degree of dim barbaric truth, in the quaint old-world legend that I have just invented, that in these two cases the civilized product is felt to be fiercer, nay, even the wilder. Nobody seems to be afraid of a wild dog. He is classed among the jackals and the servile beasts. The terrible cave Canaan is written over man's creation. When we read Beware the Dog, it means Beware of the Tame Dog, for it is the Tame Dog that is terrible. He is terrible in proportion as he is tame. It is his loyalty and his virtues that are awful to the stranger, even the stranger within your gates, still more to the stranger halfway over your gates. He is alarmed at such deafening and furious docility. He flees from that great monster of mildness. Well, I have much the same feeling when I look at the roses, rank, red, and thick, and resolute round a garden. They seem to me bold and even blustering. I hasten to say that I know even less about my own garden than about anybody else's garden. I know nothing about roses, not even their names. I know only the name Rose, and Rose is, in every sense of the word, a Christian name. It is Christian in the one absolute and primordial sense of Christian, that it comes down from the age of pagans. The rose can be seen and even smelt in Greek, Latin, Provincial, Gothic, Renaissance, and Puritan poems. Beyond this mere word rose, which, like wine and other noble words, is the same in all the tongues of white men, I know literally nothing. I have heard the more evident and advertised names. I know there is a flower which calls itself the glory of Dijon, which I had supposed to be its cathedral. In any case, to have produced a rose and a cathedral is to have produced not only two very glorious and humane images, but also, as I maintain, two very soldierly and defiant things. I also know there is a rose called Marshall Neal. Note once more the military ring. And when I was walking round my garden the other day, I spoke to my gardener, an enterprise of no little valor, and asked him the name of a strange dark rose that had somehow oddly taken my fancy. It was almost as if it reminded me of some turbid element in history and the soul. Its red was not only swarthy, but smoky. There was something congested and wrathful about its color. It was at once theatrical and sulky. The gardener told me it was called Victor Hugo. Therefore it is that I feel all roses to have some secret power about them. Even their names may mean something in connection with themselves, in which they differ from nearly all the sons of men. But the rose itself is royal and dangerous. Long as it has remained in the rich house of civilization, it has never laid off its armor. A rose always looks like a medieval gentleman of Italy, with a cloak of crimson and a sword, with a thorn is the sword of the rose. And there is this real moral in the matter, that we have to remember that civilization, as it goes on, ought not, perhaps, to grow more fighting, but ought to grow more ready to fight. The more valuable and reposeful is the order we have to guard, 
the more vivid should be our ultimate sense of vigilance and potential violence. And when I walk round a summer garden, I can understand how those high, mad lords at the end of the Middle Ages, just before their swords clashed, caught at roses for their instinctive emblems of empire and rivalry. For to me, any such garden is full of the War of the Roses. THE GOLD OF GLASTONBURY One silver morning I walked into a small grey town of stone, like twenty other grey western towns, which happened to be called Glastonbury, and saw the magic thorn of near two thousand years growing in the open air as casually as any bush in my garden. In Glastonbury, as in all noble and humane things, the myth is more important than the history. One cannot say anything stronger of the strange old tale of St. Joseph and the Thorn than that it dwarfs St. Dunstan. Standing among the actual stones and shrubs, one thinks of the first century and not of the tenth. One's mind goes back beyond the Saxons and beyond the greatest statesmen of the Dark Ages. The tale that Joseph of Arimathea came to Britain is presumably a mere legend, but it is not by any means so incredible or preposterous a legend as many modern people suppose. The popular notion is that the thing is quite comic and inconceivable, as if one said that Watt Taylor went to Chicago or that John Bunyan discovered the North Pole. We think of Palestine as little, localized, and very private, of Christ's followers as poor folk, estric globus, rooted to their towns or trades, and we think of vast routes of travel and constant world communications as things of recent and scientific origin. But this is wrong, at least the last part of it is. It is part of that large and placid lie that the rationalists tell when they say that Christianity arose in ignorance and barbarism. Christianity arose in the thick of a brilliant and bustling cosmopolitan civilization. Long sea voyages were not so quick, but were quite as incessant as today, and though in the nature of things Christ had not many rich followers, it is not unnatural to suppose that he had some, and a Joseph of Arimathea may easily have been a Roman citizen with a yacht that could visit Britain. The same fallacy is employed with the same partisan motive in the case of the Gospel of St. John, which critics say could not have been written by one of the first few Christians because of its Greek transcendentalism and its platonic tone. I am no judge of the philology, but every human being is divinely appointed judge of the philosophy, and the platonic tone seems to me to prove nothing at all. Palestine was not a secluded valley of barbarians. It was an open province of a polygot empire, overrun with all sorts of people of all kinds of education. To take a rough parallel, suppose some great prophet arose among the Boers in South Africa. The prophet himself might be a simple or unlettered man, but no one who knows the modern world would be surprised if one of his closest followers were a professor from Heidelberg or an M.A. from Oxford. 
All this is not urged here with any notion of proving that the tale of the thorn is not a myth. As I have said, it probably is a myth. It is urged with much more important object of pointing out the proper attitude towards such myths. The proper attitude is one of doubt and hope and a kind of light mystery. The tale is certainly not impossible, as it is certainly not certain. And through all the ages since the Roman Empire, men have fed their healthy fancies with their historical imagination upon the very twilight condition of such tales. But today real agnosticism has declined along with real theology. People cannot leave a creed alone, although it is the essence of a creed to be clear. By neither can they leave a legend alone, though it is the essence of a legend to be vague. That sane half-skepticism which was found in all rustics, in all ghost tales and fairy tales, seems to be a lost secret. Modern people must make scientifically certain that St. Joseph did or did not go to Glastonbury, despite the fact that it is now quite impossible to find out, and that it does not, in a religious sense, very much matter. But it is essential to feel that he may have gone to Glastonbury. All songs, arts, and dedications, branching and blossoming like the thorn, are rooted in some such sacred doubt. Taken thus, not heavily like a problem, but lightly like an old tale, the thing does lead one along the road of very strange realities, and the thorn is found growing in the heart of a very secret maze of the soul. Something is really present in the place, some closer contact with the thing which covers Europe, but is still a secret. Somehow the great town and the green bush touch across the world the strange small country of the garden and the grave. There is verily some communion between the thorn tree and the crown of thorns. A man never knows what tiny thing will startle him to such ancestral and impersonal fears. Piles of superb masonry will often pass like a common panorama, and on this grey and silver morning the ruined towers of the cathedral stood about me somewhat vaguely like grey clouds. But down in a hollow, where the local antiquaries are making a fruitful excavation, a magnificent old ruffian with a pickaxe, whom I believe to have been St. Joseph of Arimathea, showed me a fragment of the old vaulted roof which he had found in the earth, and on the whitish-grey stone there was just a faint brush of gold, there seemed a piercing and sword-like pathos, an unexpected fragrance of all forgotten or desecrated things, in the bare survival of that poor little pigment upon the imperishable rock. To the strong shapes of the Roman and Gothic I had grown accustomed, but that weak touch of color was at once tawdry and tender, like some popular keepsake. Then I knew that all my fathers were men like me, for the columns and arches were grave and told of the gravity of the builders. But here was one touch of their gaiety. I almost expected it to fade from the stone as I stared. It was as if men had been able to preserve a fragment of a sunset. 
and then i remembered how the artistic critics have always praised the grave tints and the grim shadows of the crumbling cloisters and abbey towers and how they themselves often dress up like gothic ruins in the sombre tones of dim grey walls or dark green ivy i remember how they hated almost all primary things but especially primary colours i knew they were appreciating much more delicately and truly than i the sublime skeletons and the mighty fungoids of the dead glastonbury but i stood for an instant alive in the living glastonbury gay with gold and coloured like the toy book of a child the end of chapters thirteen through fifteen